1 Thessalonians chapter 2 today. And basically, this is a great chapter, and we're going to go through that. I'm not going to read the whole thing through. I'm going to read like some verse by verse, and then in some I will read three or four verses together uh, so that we can get a good idea of what Paul was talking about here. But Paul starts off first by saying, you know that our visit with you was not a failure. They had previously suffered and were insulted in Philippi. Now, you know, we think of Philippi, we, John taught on that for about 15 years, I think it was. And uh, really, uh, so we, thought, we think of Philippi, for Philippi as a good place for Paul. But he was suffered there. He did uh, actually go under some very hard torment there. I'm going to read for you. This comes from Acts 16, verses 16 through 24. And I'm going to read them for you. I have them on my phone. Okay, this is what it says. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and, and us, crying out, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Having Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you, in the name of Jesus Christ, to come out of her. And it, and it came out of her that hour. Now, but when their owners saw that they, their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas. They dragged them to the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews. They're disturbing our city. Customs that are not lawful for us. And as Romans, to accept their practice. The crowd joined in attacking them. The magistrates tore their garments off, gave them orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into an inner prison. He fastened their feet in stocks. So we can see it was pretty, uh, pretty trying there for Paul for a while. And if you read on in this story, which we're not going to, it tells the story of the Philippian jailer and what happened with the earthquake and the angel coming. So that's for another time, and you can read that on your own. But anyways, what it's showing us is what Paul was talking about here, that they did suffer uh, and were insulted in Philippi. Okay, In verses 1 and 2, this is what he specifies particularly. He says that he and his fellow workers had been shamefully treated at Philippi, they had been obliged to encounter much opposition at Thessalonica. But with the help of God, he said, we dare to tell you the gospel. And that's, that's Paul's idea. Paul, Paul didn't uh, stop preaching the gospel at any, any course. There were any roadblocks that were put in his way. He sort of just went around them, over them, or, or however he could get about them. And in verses 3 and 4, that, he says that in their efforts to convert the Thess Thessalonica, the Thessalonians, I'll get that right yet. They did not use deceit or corruption. Or are we trying to trick you, he says. And Paul uh, was the type, as we know, that Paul was straightforward. He received his truth and his understanding and knowledge from Jesus himself. So he knew what the truth was, and, he, and uh, that's what Paul taught. He didn't, he didn't waver from that truth, no matter what, it, what the uh, recourse was from other people which were many in certain situations. So their goal excluded any, anything that was hidden from the eyes of God, he tested their hearts, and that's what Paul did. Anything that God didn't test their hearts with, they wouldn't, they wouldn't 
they wouldn't bring that about. It had to be the truth of God all the time. So in verses four and five and seven, Paul uses, the, this is interesting, he uses the word flattery, which is taken from the Greek word kolakeia, which always describes the flattery with whose motives are gain. And, you know, there were problems in the early church there with those who attempted to gain from Christianity. We have a lot of that today. Uh, and we think of it as just something, you know, that's in our generation or in our time period. Like we have the television evangelists who, who make millions and millions of dollars off of uh, their, their, what the so-called religion is, whatever they're preaching. But this went back all the way to that time. And I'm going to read for you what uh, Barclay, I don't know if you've ever seen Barclay, but this is Barclay's, uh, William Barclay. He wrote the New Daily Study Bible. Every uh, Bible book he has a study on. And I want to read this for you. He, he quotes this from a book called the Didache. Now, the Didache meant Didache in the Greek means teaching. And this was the book that was put out in 100 AD. It was called The Teaching of the Twelve Apostles. And this is what he said. The first Christian book of order is called the Didache. And in it, there are some illuminating instructions. Let every apostle that comes to you be received as the Lord, and he shall stay one day, and if need be, the next also. But if he stays three days, he is a false prophet. And when the apostle goes forth, let him take nothing, save bread until he reaches his lodging. But if he asks for money, he is a false prophet. No prophet that orders a table in the spirit shall eat of it, else he is a false prophet. If he that comes in as a passerby, take care of him as far as you can, but he shall not abide with you longer than two or three days, unless there is some necessity. But if he is minded to settle among you and be a craftsman, let him work and eat. But if he has no trade, according to your understanding, provide that he shall not live idle among you, being a Christian. But if he will not uh, do this, he is a Christ monger. Of such men beware. So you see, we see all these things that he's talking about. There apparently somebody was violating a lot of things to, to get money from people and to get uh, things from them, housing, lodging, anything they could, I guess. And uh, that's just a shame because we have it, have it here today too. <laughs> so, so a lot of the things we see happening when we read about them in the newspapers today, when we go back and we see in our history, we find that the same things were happening back then. And maybe not to the scale today, but to some scale. Okay, so Paul, uh, he says, we're not looking to, to please men or to praise, get praise from men you or anybody else. He says, though, we might have demands as apostles of Christ. And uh, it does seem probable from this context that the apostle did refer or did not refer to authority or to support because we know Paul worked for his keep, but exclusively, but may have included some areas of both of those. But uh, in verse seven, he chooses to do nothing that would be a burden. He treated them with gentleness and uh, with, he says here, with which a nurse cherishes her children or a father his sons. And now that word rendered nurse here may mean anyone who nurses a child, whether a mother or anyone else. Seems to refer here to a mother, and the idea is that the apostle felt for them the affection which a mother does for her child at the breast. 
Okay, and that was Paul. That's why Paul was. He was when he made converts. He was very affectionate, very compassionate, and very much on their side and trying to teach them the way of Christ and to do the things you know of a way that weren't ang anger wasn't involved or anything of that nature. So in verse eight, he says, "Being affectionately desirous of you." <laughs> the word he uses here, being affectionately desirous, in the Greek is ome romanoi. Ome Romanoi. <laughs> it's, this is the only place the word is used in the scriptures. Ome Romanoi. And I can see why. It has 11 letters and really sounds terrible. But what it means is to long after, to have a strong affection for. For since, the sense here is Paul was so strongly attached to them that he would be willing to lay down his life for them. And uh, that Paul was. Paul was that way. Well, when he, how many times we read that Paul was whipped or he was stoned or he was shipwrecked and all these things that happened to Paul, yet he never turned away from the gospel, continued to preach the gospel no matter where he was or how difficult it was and, and so forth. And, and Paul goes on and says, he says here, not the gospel only. Uh, to be willing to communicate the knowledge of the gospel was in itself a strong proof of love, even if there was no danger involved. Anybody that would go out and preach the gospel in those days, remember the gospel was was new, especially Paul here is teaching to the Gentiles who who never even heard of Jesus in some cases. So the the idea of doing that could be very, very hurtful in a physical sense to Paul. But here's a couple of things that we can decide that shows our proof of love for one another. We have decided to love for to a decided love for a man when we tell him the way of salvation and to and to get him to accept it that's that, when we do that that's we're showing that proof of love for god because we're willing to step out of sometimes our comfort zone and to say things and teach things to these people secondly we show strong interest for one who's in danger when we tell him a way of escape and we can do that we you know we talk to people who may be on drugs they may be on uh, different things, smoking, uh, so forth, and, and we teach them that they can break that, and uh, so forth and so on. And then we show strong interest for one who is sick when we tell him or her of a medicine that will restore them. And these things are all showing uh, God's love, because many people, uh, when they see these things, they, they turn away, they go the other way. And that's not what we as Christians should be doing. We should be trying to help in every... Uh, fast that we can. The other day I was at uh, Aldi's, <laughs> speaking of Aldi's, and I was in line and the woman in front of me, uh, she didn't have enough money to pay for her bill. And, and they were struggling up her, you know, the line was getting bigger and bigger. So I asked her, I said, how much do you, do you need? And the lady said, uh, she needs a dollar something. So I looked in my wallet, I had a $5 bill. So I gave her the $5 bill and she got paid for it. And she wanted to give me, I said, no, you keep it because you know, that's what Jesus would do. And she just looked at me and smiled and, and thought that was very uh, compassionate of me and kind. And that's what we need to do. I seen a lady one time at, a, at a, a giant eagle back home in Pittsburgh pay for a woman's, for their entire order, which was huge. And it would, she, her credit card would not go through. It comes like 200 and some dollars. And the lady paid the whole thing with another card. And, the, and the, she said to her, Merry Christmas. <laughs> so, so these are things we need to do, little things. They don't have to be big things, little things. And we see people hurting or needs, 
that we can take care of helping him. You know, and one time I was going uh, with my car to to my car, and there was a lady trying to get stuff into her uh, truck. So I just, ma'am, do you want me to help you? Because I see she was struggling; she couldn't get him in there. So I got that in for her, and she was very thankful for that. And these are things of showing God's love for people, and in such a way, it's not not hurting us. It's very easy to do this. But uh, that's what that's what Paul would do, and go way beyond that. Uh, and so we, because, but we must manifest what I put here must manifest a higher love when we tell a lost and a ruined sinner the way in which he may be saved. That's the biggest thing we can do for people. And uh, as we get along in here, we have Paul ends up. Uh, uh, saying a few words that when you interpret them in Greek, it has a very special meaning. But there's no stronger interest that we can have than to show someone the way that they may be rescued from everlasting ruin. And that is ruin. If they're not saved, we know it's, it's ruin. They may not, but we do. And but also our own lives, Paul says, if it had been necessary, he would have been willing to lay down his life for them. We know that. First John 3.16 says, we ought to lay down our lives for our brethren because Christ laid down his life for us. And that's what Paul was doing many, many times. Uh, we didn't see it. I'm, I keep looking over at the clock because I don't want to, why don't we use 20 to 25 minutes and then if you guys have any questions, you can write them to Nathan and then we'll, we'll answer them at the end of the uh, class. So in verse 9, he says, For you remember, brethren, our, law, our labor, our travail, travel, our travail, for we labored night and day, so it was apparent to Paul when he wasn't preaching the gospel, he was working. We know Paul was working because he was a tent maker and he had other skills and he probably was working through the week preaching on Sunday or it might have been Saturday in the synagogue, who knows. And if it would engage preaching on the daytime during the week, he probably made that up by working at night. And that's the way Paul was. He wanted to do that so no one could say to him that uh, he was... Uh, making himself rich at the expense of others. Paul probably preached the gospel for free wherever he could. And we know the story of when he was preaching long into the night, it was midnight, and the fellow was sleeping on the windowsill, fell asleep, <laughs> fell out the window, and Paul had to go down and revive him. Remember that story? Paul would just go on and on and on. And I think sometimes if I remember back when we first received the word that we, uh, we were the same way. We didn't re revive anybody bring back to life <laughs> we would go on and on and on and we'd look at the clock and say wow it's it's 10 o'clock we gotta we gotta get going we gotta go to work tomorrow you know and fellowship with uh, fellow christians and when you start talking about the lord it just there's no end in sight <laughs> and uh so let's move on to verse 10 <laughs> paul says you are witnesses they had a full opportunity of knowing his manner of life and he says god also and this is a solemn appeal to truth to God for what he had uh, said. He, he refers not only to their own observation, but to the fact of what God himself witnessed when his, his, in his sincerity. And he does this, uh, God knew the truth. He wasn't imposing on God, but what he was saying was, God knows what I'm saying. He's the one that taught me. And I'm telling you the truth. And he can, he can relate to that too. And that's what he's saying here. He was appealing to the one who had that intimately, he was intimately acquainted with the truth. Verse 11, you know how 
we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you. They exhorted them basically to a holy life. And that's what we were talking about, converting people. And in times of affliction, um, the Greek word here is used in the sense of protesting or making an earnest and solemn appeal. They came as witnesses from God of the truth of religion and of the importance of living a holy manner of life. And they did not originate the gospel themselves. And that's what Paul's trying to get across here. Or teach its duties and doctrines of their own. See, they were God's doctrines. They were his teaching. And they came uh, in the capacity to those who bore witness of what God had revealed and required. And they were teaching it from them. And, and what he learned from Jesus himself. And he goes on to say, as a father does his children, with an interest in your welfare, such as a father feels for his children, and with such a method that the father would, uh, would use. It wasn't, wasn't done in a harsh, uh, dictatorial, or arbitrary meaning, manner, but in the tenderness of love. We all could probably relate that to our children when we were disciplined. My kids, the first I would tell them is, I love you, you but you, know, you have to be disciplined when you, when you do what you did. And, uh, and they understood that. My, my kids grew up to be very knowledgeable of the uh, gospel. And they're all uh, uh, good, uh, I would call good people today. And uh, working every day, got good jobs and went through school and everything. Did what their father wanted them to do. But I remember sometimes when I was just 13, I thought my father was pretty stupid. <laughs> so, you know, we all probably did. Hey, I know more than him. What's he tell, telling me that for? But uh, then when you get to be 21, 25, you say, boy, he'd do more than I thought. <laughs> but that's just the way human uh, life is. We uh, see things from different perspectives at different ages. Okay. And in verse 12, Paul says that you would walk worthy of the gospel. Isn't that great? That you would live in such a manner that would honor God and uh, God who has chosen you to be his friends, that's a great word, to be his friends. And uh, we know that God wants us to be his friends uh, for anybody who wants to come into his fold. And a child does walk, walk worthy of honor of a parent when he lives in such a way to reflect the honor of that parent for the methods in which he was taught. And I wrote down five things that he does, and he does this when he's living his life, when he keeps one, he keeps all of his commands. Two, when he leads a life of purity and virtue. Three, when he carries out the principles of the family into his own life. Four, when he honors his father by having a profound respect for his opinions. And five, when he endeavors to provide for his comfort and promote his wealth. Now today we have a lot of problems with these things, with a lot of the way kids are brought up today and brought up in the manner of they, uh, they have more control of the family than the parents. So it's good that we, uh, can, we can get our kids to do that. So, and Paul says, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory unto the fellowship of the son. So to participate with his son, Jesus, and to be partakers with him. And uh, we're about, like about five more minutes. I think we can get most of this in or all of it. In verse 13, he says, we thank God constantly because I'm going to read 13 through 16 real quick. We thank God constantly because when you receive the word of God, you did not receive it as the word of men, but as the true word of God, which is at work in you. 
in you believers. 14, for you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus, which are in Judea, for you suffer the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Verse 15, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, they drove and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all men. 16, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but God's wrath has come upon them at last. So to the Thessalonians, the Christian faith had brought not peace, trouble. And in that day, that's usually what happened when people learned the gospel. There was more trouble than there was peace at first because they suffered, according to Paul here, from the same people that he suffered from. The same persecutions that were brought upon him were brought upon them by the Jews. And they had uh, received persecutions from them. But they looked at that as a badge of honor. And uh, that, that gave them the rank with the, basically what we would call the army of Christ. And they looked upon them with honor. And I think we, think we see that today when we see real Christians and they're uh, upholding their faith and, and things don't go uh, the way other people around them think they are. I can remember when I was baptized, which was later in life when I was in my, probably about 33. And when I was baptized and my family, was, I grew up as, in the Catholic faith. And one day I, I was at my mom's home and three or four of my aunts were there, they're her sister. She had a big family, it was about 11. And uh, I was telling them about my faith and about being baptized. And my one aunt looked at me and she said, you know, that don't count. <laughs> So, so basically, because you know, being baptized as an infant was their their ideal, but uh, but that's when we get uh, filled with Jesus. It doesn't matter who we're around and we talk to, and it doesn't matter what they say because we know the truth. You see, and that's that's why these people in Thessalonica were being persecuted by the same people that Paul was because he was he was preaching to them a different uh, gospel than they wanted to hear. So in 15 and 16, Paul draws up a kind of catalog of the errors made by the Jews. He says, number one, they killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets. When God's messengers came to them, they eliminated them. <laughs> That's an easy way of getting rid of your opposition, isn't it? One of the grim things about the gospel narrative is the intensity with which the leaders of the Jews sought to get rid of Jesus before he could really do any more damage is basically what they were trying to do. Remember, I don't know if any of you have watched The Chosen, but it's a great series. And in there, there's a great scene in there when it shows uh, the Pharisees and uh, Jesus, would, this was the, the, when Jesus had the paralytic brought down from the roof and he healed him, told him to get up, get up and walk, take your bed up and walk. And the, the Jews, this huge congregate of people were outside this house. And the Jew, the Pharisees look in there and they're trying to wash the people away to get in there because, you know, he's stealing their people. <laughs> so they were very jealous and that's what was happening. And uh, so they, they didn't want him to cause any more trouble was the basic idea. In fact, they called the Romans on him many times and we know that, that Jesus escaped. And uh, so basically the, uh, they refused to listen to the uh, message of Jesus. But the, the, you know what? They can never eliminate it from the structure of the universe because it's there. And it's there in history. It's there. It'll always be there. No matter how many times they've tried to eliminate Bibles and the teachings throughout history, we know that they couldn't do that. In fact, it has grown more and more and, uh, and faster and faster. 
Okay, now the exclusivity of the Jews. There was a fellow by the name of Jonathan Swift who put this into hit their ideas into four little lines here. He said, We are God's chosen few. All others will be damned. There is no room in heaven for you. We can't have heaven crammed. <laughs> and he was saying this about the Pharisees because the Pharisees, to them, there was no other people that could get into heaven. They were, they were the chosen people and they were, and Gentiles never should receive the, uh, the message. Okay, then finishing up here at 17 through 20. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly with great desire to see you face to face. Verse 18, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. 19, for what is, your, what is our hope or joy or crown or boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming is not, is not you. What is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord at his coming? Uh, verse 20, for you are our glory and our joy. And uh, 1 Thessalonians, the book has been called a classic friendship. And here's, here's a passage which Paul's deep affection for his friends actually breathes through these words. And uh, he, number one, he speaks of Satan blocking his way to when he desired to come to the Thessalonians. Thessalonians. <laughs> From Thessalonica. Okay, the word he uses in Greek is egkoptane. They're a difficult word, egkoptane. It's a technical word for putting a roadblock which is calculated to stop an expedition on the march. And uh, so it is Satan's work to throw obstacles into Christians' way. It's our work to break through them. And that's what Paul's talking about. He much rather had come to see them face to face, but uh, Satan had uh, put these roadblocks in his way that he couldn't do it. Number two, he speaks of the Thessalonians being his crown. This is an important one because he's, he's in the Greek, there are two words for crown. The first one is diadema, and which is used almost exclusively for the Roman royal crown. The other is Stephanus, which is used almost exclusively for victor's crown in some contests, and especially for the athlete's crown of victory in their games. And Paul uses a lot of times uh, the Olympic uh, words there uh, in expressing his attitudes. So it is the Stephanus crown that Paul uses here. The only prize is left. In life, he says that he really valued was to see his converts victorious in Jesus, you see. And I want to close with uh, just this little statement from William Barclay, who I mentioned to you before. Uh, he said, nothing that we can do can bring us credit in the sight of God. But at the very end, the stars in our individual crown will be those whom he or she led nearer to Jesus Christ. So truthful. And... Uh, and Paul, uh, you know, Paul fought the good fight, he says, and uh, so forth, and, and he did. He fought it very, uh, very courageously in many, uh, many days when he was uh, whipped in this, especially in Philippi there, to be, to be whipped. And him being a Roman citizen, they probably, he probably could have gotten them in trouble for doing that. He never brought that upon them.